Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this program, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to another episode of Byline, uh, United Ireland's campaign series where we talk to great journalists about the stories that matter to them and to us as well. Fintan O'Toole is a columnist with the Irish Times and widely and correctly viewed as the most essential voice in Irish journalism. He has been, amongst many other things, visiting lecturer at Princeton University. He's written by my count, this could be wrong, 25 books. He has won many awards, including the European Press Prize for Commentary in 2017, which was the same year he won the Orwell Prize for Journalism and received an honorary doctorate in laws at NUI Galway. He also has another honorary doctorate in letters from Queen's University Belfast. But of course, we could bang on about awards and accolades. But what Finton achieves, in my opinion, um, is a steadfast clarity of thinking through the medium of exceptional writing. He is not just the conscience of Irish journalism, but a conscience in Irish society, holding, uh, upholding the values of journalism that through their repetition can often sound a little trite, like holding power to account. But he does that with real meaning, empathy, honesty, truth, and often a tenderness that is increasingly easy to abandon in an era of binary debates and hot takes. We could talk about a lot of things, but on this episode, we're focusing on Brexit because in the Brexit era, Fintan has become the smartest voice on the issue, rising above the din with his trademark reason, insight and intelligence. Welcome to Byline on United Ireland, Fintan. Thanks very much, Anna. Now, uh, we usually start off um, with, a, with a conversation about um, where, where and how people grew up and when the trade of journalism uh, came calling. Um, when I ask you that, what do you think? Well, I grew up in, um, in, in, in Crumlin, um, the corporation housing estate um, in, in the 1960s. Um, uh, I was actually born in the year of the um, Whitaker-Lamas revolution, 1958, you know, when Ireland's Irish modernity began in a way, you know, so I, I sort of grew up with that um, and was very much a, a, a child of the revolution in the sense that um, I don't think I would have ever got to secondary school if Donna O'Malley hadn't made um, a kind of uh, pretty rogue uh, political decision to introduce free education. Um, you know, so so I'm very much of that generation who, uh, you know, who were the first in their families, boys and girls, who 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 ever went to second level education, never mind on to university. So that's always stayed with me. You know, I'm always conscious that political decisions can matter uh, in people's lives, not just uh, in bad ways, but also in enormously enabling ways. I, I believe in in politics. I believe in democracy, um, uh, and. I suppose, you know, I, I, I started writing when I was in school, um, school newspaper, and then edited a, a student newspaper in UCD. And um, gradually, you know, I, I spent a lot of time as a freelance journalist. Um, I worked for a magazine called In Dublin, which is sadly no longer around. I, uh, well, I said worked for them. I was uh, paid, I think, £20 a fortnight. <laughs> but it was a great training. I was drama critic there, and I wrote about politics. And I started writing about both culture and politics, you know, at the same time. And I've never really seen them as, as separate areas. And I suppose if there's anything that's characterized the way I've written since, it's probably that. Can you remember any of the stories uh, that you wrote in the school newspaper or what were they thematically concerned with? Um, I actually, so I, I had, I was an activist, you know, um, when I was 14, I think I joined a thing called the Irish Union of School Students. Um, so a lot of the stuff that I was writing was, my first publication was a survey about corporal punishment because we were still hit in school, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's hard to remember that, but, you know, it was still perfectly legal to beat uh, not just children, but 
you know, school students up to the age of 17, 18, you know, um, and I found that pretty outrageous. So uh, that's the first thing I really remember writing as a, as a sort of big piece of writing was, was, was about that. Um, and a lot of it was kind of, you know, kind of campaigning to have a, have a voice in the running of the school, you know, to have a, a school council established and that, that sort of stuff. Um, and, um, you know, there was, I mean, it may seem, I'm actually, I've been I'm writing a book about Ireland since 1958 at this moment. So I'm sort of looking at some of this stuff and thinking about it. But, you know, one of the big issues in the 1960s in, in schools for boys was hair. You know, it's, it, it, somebody really needs to do a sort of PhD on hair as a signifier of social change, you know, because boys growing their hair long was like a huge issue and a real issue of conflict. I mean, hundreds of boys were expelled from schools for, and when I mean long hair, I don't mean, you know, what it subsequently became. I mean, I had a glorious Afro in my, in my later uh, teens, but, you know, at school, it was like just growing your hair down to the length beyond your collar, maybe letting your earlocks grow a bit. Um, And the repression, you know, the sense that actually we we will decide what you look like. We will decide what you wear. We will decide how, uh, how you wear your hair. And I know there were very different, uh, pressures on girls but on on boys it was there was also very much the thing about masculinity you know and about how a boy was supposed to behave and look um uh, and i suppose i was also sort of uh interested in that stuff too you know just just that, that well, why did they think they could do this to us <laughs> mm, a question that a lot of students are still asking yeah. to this day of course um when did you start working or writing for the irish times then so I, I, um, I was approached by the Irish Times in 1988. Um, so I was, I can't quite remember whether I, I was just about to turn 30 or I had just turned 30, but it was, it was around that time. Um, and, uh, I had been writing, uh, I, I wrote, uh, my first job was with the Sunday Tribune, um, under Vincent Brown, um, who was both a, a a great and a, and a notorious uh, editor. He was wonderful in, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, he sort of gave jobs to young people, uh, which was, which was amazing and let them do all sorts of things. He was also, could be difficult to work for, but you know, he, he on the whole, I was a very, very positive influence. And I edited McGill for a while, um, like another thousand journalists or so who, who got their, chance at it before Vincent, uh, they fell out with Vincent. Uh, and then I was, I went back to being freelance for a while. And then I was uh, approached by the Irish Times in 1988. And actually, they approached me to, to write um, a back page diary sort of column or something, you know, and I said, No, I, I, I don't do that stuff. I'm not that interested, really. And, you know, we, we were married at the time, and, you know, we had a mortgage and I was like freelance journalism, as you know, is very difficult and very poorly paid. And, and, um, I, said, I don't know how, how blase I was. I just said, nah, no, 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 thanks. I don't really want to do that. And then, and then Connor Brady was the other time said, well, would you like to write a column? And I, I said, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds okay. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> and then I, so I was, I, I, I started in 1988. Yeah. So. I, I feel like a uh, an ancient survivor of, of, of an earlier era in newspapers. What does your working week look like then in terms of deadlines and things like that? So, um, you know, I, 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 I do a lot of different stuff now. So I've sort of, after a lot of time, you know, I've negotiated a kind of settlement with the Irish Times where... Um, I b- broadly speaking, I I, I work um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday would be the times I would work on the Irish Times columns, and uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I I tend to end up doing other stuff. So I I just you mentioned I I teach in Princeton um, one one semester a year and and writing books and all of that kind of stuff. So uh, it, it's it's sort of a way of doing it that that sort of suits. Um, the bad thing about doing a lot of stuff is that uh, you you work too much, you know. Which um, I'm essentially a lazy person. I love I love doing nothing, um, but I haven't had that luxury for for quite a while. Mm. Let's go to the topic uh, of the day and of the half decade, I suppose. Um, you've kind of become the go to 
Brexit existentialist explainer. Uh, is this a role you env- envisaged inhabiting back in 2016? Uh, uh, absolutely not. No, no. Um, like Brexit was always great to write about. I mean, it's the, and, you know, I'm sure you know this too, but you know, the, the, the paradox of the moral paradox of journalism is that in a way the sort of matter things are the worse they are, the better they are to write about because they're more, they're more interesting. And, um, you know, so I, I started writing about it and, and, but it, it, it did occur to me that as Irish people, we sort of know this stuff better than the English know it. We, mm. we know about nationalism, you know, <laughs> our, our political culture is saturated in it. You know, we've, we've, we've lived with it. We, we know about its, uh, the importance of of, a, of collective identity, of national identity, you know, it's it's very deep within all of us. We also know how horrifically it can go wrong. You know? <laughs> that there's there's versions of nationalism, uh, and so we're not innocent about it. Whereas it, it just began to strike me, you know, in about 2015. So before the referendum, just you know, talking to English people, English friends, even you know, realizing, Jesus, they they don't. They don't get this stuff. They don't really know how dangerous it is. They don't really know what it is that they're that they're playing with. You know this this fire, and of course they didn't know about Ireland. You know, um, I'm sure you found this too over the years. But it, it really came back to me with an incredible force. You know, it's just how even highly educated, liberal, professional English people, you know, who are very well-intentioned and lovely, absolutely, you know, that's no no malice at all. But you talk about Ireland and it's suddenly you realize they don't know the first thing about it. It's, it's, it's as if it's this sort of absolute mystery to them. And the Belfast Agreement and all the stuff that matters so much to us, you know, you just found that actually they just thought, oh, well, that's all over, isn't it? That was great. You know, you 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 people made peace. You stopped killing each other. <laughs> isn't that wonderful? And you know, so you just start saying, well, well, hold on a minute here. Yeah, it is wonderful, but it's not over, and it's fragile, and and it's a process. You know, and and this thing coming right in the middle of this process, it's just like somebody coming in with big, you know, steel caps boots and, and, and kicking everybody, you know, without even thinking about it or, or, or knowing what you're doing. Uh, so I suppose that was the motivation really to, to start writing about it. Mm. Uh, and then, I mean, I wrote a book about it because uh, <laughs> like a very quick book in like six weeks or whatever, but it, it just occurred to me, there was a question, nobody in England, you know, and I, there's some, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying like I'm better than, or, you know, but it's just maybe from the Irish perspective, there was something it was kind of obvious to us that nobody was writing about in England, which was just the really basic questions. And they're all writing about the process and the arguments and the economy and all the rest of it. But I was saying, what's the imaginative question? Like, which is how how does it become credible in 2016 for a very privileged post-imperial Western European country? to Start imagining itself to be intolerably oppressed. You know? <laughs> The, the self pity, like where does the self pity come from? You know, and and then I suppose that's that's that became that that book that I wrote, heroic failure. Um, so I, I suppose being Irish and also being used to thinking about culture meant that Brexit was something you could you could write about with a bit of depth. That ultimately actually made sense to at least some people in 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 Britain. Mm. Um, let we're going to talk about. English nationalism in in a bit. You touch on it a little bit there, but I guess like one of the things about Brexit is that there is so much to talk about. Like we could talk about how the referendum was allegedly and actually quite apparently corrupted or the logistical nightmare that the realities uh, of Brexit pose in real life or the border issue. But just to, I kind of want to zoom out a bit. Um, Last year, I found myself at a talk with somebody from a very... Um, respected political think tank and they were explaining the reasons for Brexit. Um, And I asked him about one of the things that he didn't mention, which was colonialism and, you know, I suppose imperialism, nostalgia, let's say, and that feeling of entitlement that orientates around those things. To what degree do you think the discombobulation around the loss of empire created the conditions that Britain is now basically drowning in? Yeah, so so you know what what I've tried to argue is that um it's it's 
there are two big sorts of psychological things that have never been resolved. Uh, one is the Second World War, which we might come back to because it, it, by God, does it come back? You know, the point as a point of reference, you know, they keep coming back to it. But the the, the, the imperial question, I don't think it's it's quite nostalgia. I, I don't think nostalgia really quite covers it, you know, because. Actually, for most English people, you know, the empire was just something that happened over there. You know, the, 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 in in many ways, the problem was that they never really took responsibility for it or thought about, you know, what benefits were they getting out of out of all of these arrangements. I think it's something else, and and I think that something else is to do with greatness. Just this this word that, of course, Trump you know uses as well, you know, so much, and so. If you've been an empire, and if you've been the biggest empire that the world has ever seen, it's very difficult to settle down into a sense that, oh, we're just an ordinary country now. <laughs> you know? and, and this might seem absurd. Well, of course you're an ordinary country. You're a privileged country. You're, you know, you're up there in the you know, top 20 or whatever. Um, you're doing pretty okay. Lots of internal oppression. I mean, I'm talking about it as a, as a whole, I mean, without talking about the huge issues of, of division and social justice within, within England itself. But you know, this, this idea that we're, we're meant to be great. And the problem then is that that mere ordinariness, just being one member of the European Union among all the others, begins to seem like it's an injustice. It's 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 a conspiracy against you. It's unnatural. <laughs> it's not the way we're meant to be. And what happens then is a very weird uh, sort of turning of empire upside down. Right. So so empire creates a binary mentality, right? You're either the top dog or you're being kicked, right? There's no real middle. There's no ordinary in empire, right? There's the, there's the ruling mother country and there's the subjected um, colony. And it, it, what, what lingers, it seems, psychologically is that, uh, that binary thing, right? So, so hold on a minute here. If we're not the mother country, then there's only one other thing we can be, which is we must be ourselves a colony and being oppressed. Now this is comic. I mean, this is this is this is sort of uh, you know way out there on the fringes of absurdity, but it is what happens. You know, it, it, it's you know if you look at the way this mentality develops, you you get them start to talk about Britain as a colony, as having been colonized, you know. So, so you, you, you just switch. It's sort of comfortable in a way because you, you retain the binary, right? So, so, so now we're, 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 we're not the top dog. We, we're, we're, we're the, the, the oppressed little nation. And it's the Germans, it's the Europeans, it's, you know, they, you know, and, and this is why this sort of self-pity comes in, this sort of hyping up of this this horrible thing that that you know the European Union is doing all this stuff to us and then of course you ask well what are they doing to you like what, what, you know, what do you really think this is like comparable to what you guys did to Ireland you know do, do you really think that's what it's like or what you did to India or or what you did to to Kenyans you know is that, is that do you really what you think like what well, no, but they're oppressing us. Like, yeah, we have, what, what are they? Well, and then this is where you get the sort of Boris Johnson stuff, the, you know, the prawn cocktail flavored crisps that they're going to stop our children eating or the, you know, all this mad, insane, and actually very funny, but but also deeply destructive playing up of this idea um, that, that there are people in Brussels who are just spending all their days thinking about new ways to torture and humiliate English people. One of the things that I, I find really interesting and correct, I think, about all of your um, writing on Brexit is that you hone in on on England rather than um, Britain or the UK or indeed Great Britain, um, and that you frame Brexit as a uh, or some of the, some of the reasons for it, let's say, as an English nationalist movement. What do you mean by that? Well, actually, that's a that's a that's a great question because what English nationalism is 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 a very open notion, you know, and 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 this is one of the problems, right? So, so if you take Irish nationalism or Scottish nationalism or most other nationalisms, they kind of know what they are. And that's not to say that they cannot be hugely problematic and 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 
include and exclude, you know, all sorts of, you know, are, are, are women allowed to be in it? Are gay people allowed to be in it? Are Protestants, you know, all that stuff. So I'm not saying that they're simple, but they they develop a narrative which is which is clear enough, right? Um, the problem for England is that historically Englishness was one of the first things that we could recognize as a national consciousness, right? It really does go back a long way. You know, you go back to the Hundred Years' War, you know, you go back to the 13th, 14th century and Agincourt and Crecy and all this stuff. And it's also a very early kind of, you could reasonably say it was a nation state, you know, before, you know, almost anybody else, you know, they, they had a single language. I mean, English became, a, you know, the, the, the language, the vernacular language. It had a single law code. It had a single, you know, civil wars, but, it, you know, people knew what England was, uh, which they didn't know what France was or Germany was, you know, or Italy, God, you know, but, but England. So, so it was this very powerful and very aggressive and very self-confident nationalism. What happened to it? Well, what happened to it was empire. So in order to do empire, you had to solve a problem, which was you had to stop the bloody Scots from invading you every time you went to war against the French. You had to dominate your own island and then your own archipelago, including Ireland, You know, which we leave Ireland out of it for a moment. But in order to do that, you had to invent this thing called Britain. Britain was an, it was an incredibly successful construct, but it is a construct. Uh, you know, I'm, I've always been fascinated by Shakespeare, you know, and it's really interesting to look at Shakespeare as the English national poet. It doesn't mention Britain at all until, you know, um, until 1606. And, and you know, then J James I of Scotland becomes James, uh, sorry, James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England. And suddenly Shakespeare is writing all about Britain. You know, <laughs> he's told he's the king's man. He's, he works for the state. He's, you know, he's helping to invent this idea of Britain. And the problem then is, so it's a, it's a brilliant construct. It really works. It helps them to create the empire. The Scots, by the way, buy into it. You know, the Scots were sort of pretty happy to be, you know, get their big slice of empire too. But the problem is when empire is gone and then, you know, by the late 1990s, you have Welsh nationalism, you have Scots nationalism, and you have the Belfast Agreement all coming together, right? So, so, so within two years, you've, 98 is the Belfast Agreement, which says basically Northern Ireland can leave the Union whenever it wants. And then Blair, Tony Blair has, has had, had done devolution. So the Scots Parliament and the Welsh Parliament come into being in 1999. And you can see very directly, it's, 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 it's almost kind of too mechanistic, but you can see it directly in the polls by 2000, 2001, 2002, English people are starting to say they're English, whereas before that they just said British. You know this thing about being English and English rather than British. If they're forced to choose, you know these questions are asked. Okay, if you had to choose between English and British, which would you choose? Sixty percent of English people are suddenly saying English, whereas in in uh, you know ten years before that, it's ten fifteen percent of them would be saying that. Right. So so you get this. This it's a reactive consciousness, right? It's it's saying, well, if the bloody Scots want to leave us and the bloody Welsh want to leave us and the bloody Irish were never really part of us anyway, we want to be English, and it's not innately unreasonable. It's there's nothing necessarily fascistic about it, nothing necessarily tuggish about it. You know, it's it's there's again, you know, as Irish people, most of us would say, you know, nationalism can be a very positive force. But the problem is nobody talks about it. Not a single respectable political party talks about Englishness. And it's just, just ignore it. And they just let it fester there. Even, you know, the most obvious English nationalist who kind of com comes up, Nigel Farage, still calls his party the UK Independence Party, UKIP. You know, even he doesn't want to say it because there's this taboo about breaking up the union, you know, which is the other side of it. So you get this very incoherent unarticulated English nationalism. And then an idiot called David Cameron comes along and says, here's an opportunity now you know, to say what you really feel, you know, uh, without knowing at all what, what it is he is unleashing. And, and Brexit then is, 
is is overwhelmingly an English phenomenon, and it's a, it's a phenomenon of non-metropolitan England as well. If you take the big cities out of out of England, particularly London, Greater London, out of it, you know it, it, the the vote for Brexit in England is is overwhelming, and it's cross-class. So it does exactly what nationalism always does. The power of nationalism politically is that it can get, you know. Uh, a, a woman who's working as a as a as a, as a cleaner in a hospital can feel an affinity with um, Jacob Rees-Mogg or, or or Boris Johnson or these these Eton toffs, you know, because nationalism works in that way. So it's incredibly powerful, but it also has very little idea as to what it wants. Its positive content is almost zero, <laughs> but its negative content, which is well, we're not them, we're not those. Brussels bastards who've been oppressing us is is very very powerful. Mm. I guess one of the like very diverse cohorts who would be have been more familiar with English nationalism, like throughout the kind of sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, is black and brown people in England who were, I guess, tormented by the more fascistic side of that. Yes, absolutely. You know, well, this is one of the most interesting things about it. So if you remember those, those early, the, the far right in, in, in England, which has a, has a very uh, long and powerful history, you know, it's often kind of suppressed, but, uh, you know, it was, it was huge. I mean, going back to Mosley, but, you know, I mean, you know, Powell was, it was a huge figure in, 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 in the 1960s and enormously popular uh, and that kind of carried on but what what people like Mosley and and, and Powell uh, they wrapped themselves in Britishness you know because mm. Britishness was the thing that had the sort of imperial stamp it had the sort of whiteness you know it it, it, it had all that stuff going for it so so even they never actually they would not have regarded themselves as English nationalists and Oddly, also, um, and I think this is one of the tragedies. I mean, for for a lot of black and brown people, a lot of the children of, you know, those the migrants from East Asia, from the Caribbean, actually Britishness was a kind of currency too, because part of the the struggle was is Britishness racialized or not. And of course, for for the Powells and and for the Farages, you know, Britishness is racialized. However, a lot of um, people from ethnic minority backgrounds could say, no, it's not Britishness. To be British, it's not a national identity. It's a it's a transnational identity. It brings all these nations together. It is multiple. It is plural. So there was a kind of progressive way of saying what Britishness was, um, which was a sort of counter argument that was used, I think, um, often very effectively by 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 people from diverse backgrounds. Um, and you know, part of the tragedy is that. Uh, the sort of progressive Britishness that might have been much more comfortable for somebody, say, from an Afro-Caribbean background, that's been destroyed because um, I think, as Anthony Barnett put it, Britishness came to mean Brexitness, uh, mm. you know, and and so it, it 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 takes on this exclusive character of being essentially English nationalism, uh, which which has that sort of us and them uh, version of a national identity rather than the more capacious and plural one. One figure who doesn't seem to come up a lot um, in Brexit discourse, uh, and I always find it quite unusual, is Thatcher. Mm. And I wonder why that is, because... Um, I kind of can't help but feel that there must be some kind of reaction to the trauma of Thatcher's reign because in some ways, like the type of very simplified or fantastical um, discourse that uh, the likes of Farage and Boris Johnson embrace is around, is very like proximate to Trump's kind of rhetoric about make make Britain great again. Um and and the things that people seem to want to get quote unquote get back 
around industry, um, self-sufficiency, um, being, having might, having power were the same things that Thatcher attacked and, and tried to dismantle and indeed attacked, you know, the state uh, as an entity. Do you see any echo there of Brexit actually being a reaction to that trauma or is that just, you know, a fun thing to say? <laughs> oh, no, I, 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 I think I think there's huge truth in it. And I think you've, you've articulated brilliantly. Um, you know, I think there's, there's two things here it might just be worth teasing out a bit. I mean, one is that Thatcher, you know, whatever you think about her, right? She, she, she's a brilliant politician because she managed to, uh, you know, to, to, to ride different horses at the same time. So as you say, she was dismantling the state in one way, but also, of course, in another way, you know, rebuilding a sort of an, an authoritarian sense of the British state, you know, so law and order, um, you know, <clears throat> cracking down on 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 um, homosexuality, you know, all uh, you know, the, the whole range of things where a very repressive kind of uh, state was w- w- was also being reformed, sending the police in to beat up the miners, you know. So so w- w- it, it's, it's this kind of this basic contradiction in 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 Thatcherism, strong state on the one side, you know, state the state is bad on the other side, but also this this. I think I think it's very hard to understand Brexit unless you also understand that there's a kind of a civil war within within British capitalism, um, which Thatcher in a way started right. So so Thatcher said what used to be British capitalism, right, which is which is rooted in the Industrial Revolution. It's this this incredible history, you know, really the having been at the world's forefront of of, of industrial development. That's gone. We're not interested in that. We're not doing that much anymore. Um, you know, she doesn't say this explicitly, but just to take a very uh, stark example of this, right? So Thatcher won re-election. I mean, Thatcher's you know longevity was founded on the Falklands War. She was bitterly unpopular because of what she was doing, because of the economic disaster, because of three million unemployed. Falklands War comes along. She goes for it. She gets the shipyards to refit, you know this this fleet. You know the Brits could be extraordinary, and they did it within 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 weeks. You know, they mounted this this uh, seaborne invasion of an island thousands of miles away. You know, incredible feat. And then the ships come come back, and the, the very shipyards that had refitted them are closed by Thatcher. You know, which would mean that Britain could never do this again. You know, it just wouldn't have the industrial capacity. You know the, the the harrowing of the north. You know the, the sort of destruction of all of that industrial capacity, the mines, the shipyards, uh, but also just a lot of ordinary industry is just just smashed by Thatcher, and is smashed in favor of a kind of different version of capitalism, which is finance capitalism, essentially led by the by the city of London, uh, plus a kind of what I, you know you might call retail capitalism. You know. You look at any place in Yorkshire, you know, where there was a mine. What's there now? A shopping centre. You know, that, that sort of shift is is engineered under Thatcherism, and of course, it leaves it leaves an extraordinary trauma. It leaves, a, you know, last year I was up around Stoke on Trent, you know, which was you 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 walk around these places and you remember this was once the centre of the world. I mean, this is where. Things that we all took for granted were invented. Industrial processes happened here, you know. And look at it now, you know. And it's 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 like, you know, all that's gone. Like all that, like three hundred years of extraordinary history is just it's just gone. They're heritage centers now, you know. The, the potteries, which was what they had there, you know. You can you can go and visit. There's a shop, you know, and there's a museum. They're not producing stuff, you know. Um, that's absolutely traumatic. I mean. I remember talking to an old man there, a very nice man, and he was telling me about, uh, he said, you know, the thing about here when I grew up was, if you didn't like one job, you just left it and you got another one. <laughs> and he said, you know, it's just, he said, the, you know, talk to anybody young now. And that idea that, you know, 
you, you fell out with your boss or you were fed up with a particular job. And these were industrial jobs. Like we're not t- necessarily talking about, you know, high-end professionals. This is ordinary people, you know, had some power in this. They had trade unions. They had, they had muscle, you know, and, and that's, that's, that was all destroyed. And you see this working itself out in Brexit now again, which is, which is, you know, if if capitalism was still unified and powerful, they'd never have done Brexit, right? It's not in their interest to do Brexit. Uh, it's in the interests of certain kinds of finance capital who can who can make a huge disaster capitalism. They can make a lot of money out of this stuff, um, but it's not in the interest. If you're if you're running a car plant in in Birmingham or in Sunderland, is it in your interest to have Brexit? Absolutely not. Why? Because the car plant's probably owned by the Japanese. It has a completely integrated um, supply chain. Uh, the 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 Nissan plant, you know, in 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 Sunderland, I think it imports three million parts a day from France. Wow! Assembles a car every seventy five seconds. Uh, the 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 end of the assembly line is 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 the railway line to the port, and the cars are. Back in France the following day, you know, it, it, it's it's an integrated system. Airbus, you know, fantastic jobs. Airbus is a is a is a trans European company. I mean, mostly French and German, but it's a huge Airbus plant outside Cardiff, for example. It makes wings. Now, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't think there's much of a market for wings. <laughs> you know? They kind of have to be attached to you know, they're, they're part of these integrated processes. So if you were just doing old fashioned manufacturing capitalism, Brexit makes no sense at all. But Thatcher's idea that actually you could get away with devastating your, your industrial base um, and still stay in power, I think, is, is one of the secret narratives of Brexit. Hmm. In, in the summer of 2016, you wrote this piece with the word that I find really interesting, hopitude, um, kind of using that as, as something that uh underpinned the language of around Brexit and also around Trump. Um I think we kind of see that now when we kind of, especially as Irish people who hear all of this um discussion from our own politicians, um, you know, Simon Coveney going on BBC radio explaining uh, what's happening, or um thinking about all of the man and woman hours that the Irish civil service has had to spend on on essentially, you know, dealing with this mess. What I find kind of mad is the lack of capacity for British governments to prepare for Brexit and follow through on any kind of practical level kind of years now after the vote and throughout the negotiations. Um, I think you wrote another column that that said almost everything about Brexit still comes out of the blue for the people who voted for it and their political leaders. Like it often f- kind of feels like after making this monumental decision, now, you know, maybe people didn't think about it too much. The political establishment has sort of depended on things just like randomly working out without much effort on their part I really failed to to understand that. Like, what do you make of that? Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, it, it is breathtaking and mystifying. And it's. I think the first thing about it is that it's a decadent ruling class. You have to remember this, right? So this is this is a a, a ruling class that you know inflicted terrible suffering on people around the world. But by God, it was good at ruling. You know, it, it built an empire. It sustained that empire over an incredibly long period of time. Um, it also, remember, sustained itself in power in Britain throughout a period of incredible social change. There was no revolution. You know, um, they were bloody good at what they did from their own perspective. And look at them now. You know, how, how, how do they end up with? With just a, an absolute lack of competence. I mean, leave aside ideology, leave aside morality. You know, just just the, the sheer business of being able to govern. Um, and it is a sort of decadent phase of 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 of, of a ruling class. You know, the very fact that they're back to Eton. You know, like Jesus, even in the nineteen eighties, if somebody had said, I mean, even under Thatcher, remember? So even Thatcher, sort of changed it in class terms. I mean, she was a greengrocer's daughter, right? She was, you know, she was an outsider. There was this sense that actually the era of these stuffed shirts is over. Um, 
And, you know, here you are back with the stuffed shirts, with the, the bullings and blazers, you know, with these, these fatuous, um, amoral, self-centered um, people for whom it's all a game, you know. And it is, it's a, it's a postmodern phase, you know. It's, it's so, you know, if everything happens twice in history, the first time was tragedy and the second time was farce. Well, the second time as farce is really what we're seeing, you know. And, and uh, you're absolutely right. I was just reading, like there was a report came out just last week from the, um, the National Audit Office in, in, in Britain, which is sort of the independent watchdog of government spending and, and, and governance. You know? And it's about Brexit preparations, you know. And I, like, it's, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it's just, you know, like none of the systems have been put in place. Uh, you know, you talk to anybody who's involved in the nitty gritty of, of, of planning, you know, and, and they're just in absolute despair. I mean, look at what happened yesterday. The, 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 the Calais started running a test of their system because they've had mm. their systems running, you know, for, for a year now. Uh, and suddenly there's like a backup of 5,000 lorries in, in Dover. Um, look at where they're going to end up. Like, like the, the, the irony is that if, if, if you'd said any of this in 2016 in the referendum, people would have said, that's absolutely disgraceful, scaremongering, it's absolutely ludicrous. Can you imagine if somebody had said in 2016, you're going to have to have a passport to get into Kent? <laughs> I mean, no, never mind France. Like, it, you, you won't be able to get into Kent without a passport. And that's effectively what they're going to end up with, right? Because they can't cope with, with the number of lorries. So they're going to actually start doing border checks going into Kent. Say, we have to check all your papers to make sure you already have them done because we don't have the capacity to do them when you get to Dover or Ebbsfleet or whatever. I mean, this is, this is just very hard to get your head around. And the only thing you can, you can bring to bear on it is they just don't believe it's real. Because you see, for these people, like for Boris Johnson, I mean, nothing is real. It's, it's it's all a game. It's all just you know what gets you through the day, what gets you, keeps you in power. You know what 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 just sort of keeps the thing moving, uh, and and so it was all based on um, on lies, of course. You know, see the the problem with inventing oppression is that it's very powerful as as a narrative, but you can't actually overthrow imaginary oppression. <laughs> so. What do you actually do? You know, uh, what, what you're left with is just pure boredom. I mean, this is one of the ironies of Brexit is that a very powerful appeal to a lot of English people was red tape, you know, saying about red tape, get rid of red tape. And yeah, red tape is, is a terrible thing. Bureaucrats, we all hate bureaucrats. We hate experts. We hate these people. Let's give them all a kick. And what do you end up with? Vastly more red tape, vastly more bureaucracy, vastly more boredom. I mean, just stuff that no sane person should ever have to spend their days thinking about unless they're being paid a lot of money to do it, you know, <laughs> becomes the stuff of everyday discourse, like, you know, rules of origin and what percentage of a sausage is actually you know made in Britain and you know, all this kind of stuff, uh, and they're just they're, they they're not competent enough to deal with it. But also, they they're still in this fantasy world, really, where the reality of it is 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 both too boring and, of course, too dark to face. Because well, you know, to face the reality is to say, Jesus, we've done something pretty crazy here. Mm. I mean, the people I feel for are people in the British civil service who've had to figure out all of these things in, you know, crisis after crisis. Um, but one of the things, like the thing that you're discussing there, which is the reality of Brexit, I do feel that to for a lot of people, um, because there's been so many deadlines passed, so many crunch summits uh, so many, you know, even like these kind of, you know, proposing, oh, we're just going to break international law because, you know, that's a thing we want to do. Yeah. Um, there is a sense still, even though we have, you know, yet another date, uh, December 31st, um, there's obviously a very like tantric aspect to Brexit, but there's also, the, there is a sense that I do think some people still kind of conceptualize it like uh, the Y2K book or something, that there's all these absolute 
logistical shit shows in every sector imaginable from how um, English musicians are going to tour in Europe to the, you know, uh, portaloos that are needed for the lorry queues, like all, all of this kind of stuff um, and, and the talk of the cliff edge. It's very hard to conceptualize like will everything just implode on New Year's Day or will these magic whatever they are um, forces manage to hold things back up but broader than that like what position does this whole thing create for Britain in the world or what position can they hold from the 1st of January onwards. Yeah, you know, it's, it's. I mean, I, I, I completely agree with you, by the way, about feeling feeling sorry for, you know, it really isn't a thing for schadenfreude, you know, because ordinary people as well are going to suffer so much in this, in this you know, people are going to lose their jobs and they're going to be paying, you know, poor people are going to be paying more for food, which, which you know, will have a huge impact on their lives and so on and so on. But, but you're absolutely right, I think, about this question about, so, so much of it is driven by the sense of our place in the world. You know, our place in the world is wrong because we, we've been made a sort of satellite uh, of of of, uh, of 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 Europe, and that's not really who we are. You know, we, we we're 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 different from that. But then, who are you? You know, who who do you relate to? Um, again, one of the paradoxes of, of, of Brexit, and it's, it's, it has a kind of historical roots in the whole second period of Second World War, you know, which is that how they dealt with empire or the loss of empire was to say, well, yeah, but that's okay because we're really America's best friend. So the, the new superpower is America and America really loves us and you know, really needs us, you know, um, and we will always suck up to them, you know, and you only have to think about those Horrific! Uh, the film of Tony Blair with with George Bush, you know, trying to ape, literally trying to ape his movements. You know, <laughs> that that mentality went very deep. And so there's this idea that well, actually, we don't really need Europe because, you know, the special relationship will save us. Well, look at the special relationship now. You know, this is, mm. this is the irony I mean, that they they screwed that up in really very serious ways. You know, by by Johnson sucking up to Trump. Um, you know, and and. You know, the people around Biden see Johnson as a racist uh, because of his stuff about Obama. Um, they see him as not just as a kind of mini-me of Trump, but in a way as someone who sort of helped to prepare the ground for Trump. You know, remember the Brexit referendum was seen by the Americans as a sort of dry run for the 2016 presidential election. A lot of the same techniques used, you know, Cambridge Analytica, all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, if, if you're a Democrat, you know all about this. Uh but also, Biden is an old-fashioned sort of post-war internationalist, right? And, and he, he, he wants Britain. He wanted Britain to be in the European Union. He wanted, you know, to have a friend in the European Union because he sees an alliance between the EU and the US as the way to run the world. Now that's problematic in itself, but I'm just saying this is the way he sees it, right? And now Britain, Britain's usefulness to the US is just massively diminished, right? Because it's just it's not. It's not our voice in in Europe, as Biden put it, you know. So, uh, and and the Biden's Irishness election also feeds into this. But that's the basic point: is that they just don't see Britain as being of of as much use as it used to be. So, what else are you left with? Well, then there's only two other big blocks in the world: is the EU, and you're 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 kicking that and and souring your relationship to it, and it's China. Um, and one of the ironies is that Britain's colonial legacy. <laughs> And actually, the, maybe the one bit of decency that's left from the colonial legacy, which is actually trying to make China um, stick to the commitments that it made when, when, it, when, it, when it regained sovereignty over Hong Kong, that's going to make it incredibly difficult for, 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 for Britain to, to form a kind of stable relationship with the Chinese because Britain, uh, and again, very ironically, and you mentioned their breach of international law in, in relation to Ireland, you know, at the same time, of course, remember they're shouting at the Chinese. You know, you have to obey international law when you, you know, the stuff that you signed up to in the nineteen nineties in relation to Hong Kong. Um, so, in relation to those three blocks, um, you know, they've put themselves in a very, very difficult situation. And you go right back then to the late nineteen sixties. You know, I, I remember reading there was a white paper published 
which is a really very realistic document saying, you know, this is why we have to join the European Union, because basically we're nowhere. We're nowhere. If we don't do this, who are we? You know, we, we, we're not an empire anymore, folks. We have, to, we have to wise up to this. And what's our place in the world? And if it's not a European place in the world, then what is it? And I, I think they're just going to find themselves right, right back there, you know, and all this bluster about global Britain, and, you know, and all the money, by the way, that Boris Johnson is pledging to put into arms, you know, as, as if sort of building up the army. That's the thing we'll do. We'll find our place in the world by being a great military power again. Yeah, you know, sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the military, um, I'm glad you raised that because it is uh something that isn't necessarily talked about, about the what next part. Um, you know, obviously there's a, there's a degree of large degree of magical thinking happening around Brexit and always has been, and there's been denial of the reality. And then there's been blindness to history. And then there's been an embracing of buffoonery. Um, you have to think, you know, leaving leaving a lot of stuff is like if you looked at it very boldly what I worry about is how does this stuff that is really hiding in plain sight potentially lead to a greater downfall than the one that we're currently witnessing I guess what I'm talking about fundamentally is you know is there a stage of English fascism to come Um, could that become a real context um, and I wonder about that with particular attention to the lack of attention that a lot of people seem to be it paying to what's going on in, in Britain itself. Um, now, is that an overly pessimistic outlook, do you think? Is that a fear that we should hold? Um, I think we should always be afraid, you know, I, I mean, I think, uh, Good politics always comes from actually thinking about the worst, you know, um, and then thinking about how to avoid it. And at the very least, one can say that there's no grounds for any complacency about democracy in Britain, and not least because this state is 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 itself, you know, at great risk of breaking up, and the breaking up of states. Um, you know, can be sometimes a very nasty process, and, and you know, it, it it can unleash forces that that are, as you say, they're already there. It's not it's not like they have to be invented. You know, these 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 nasty traditions uh, certainly exist. And you know, historically, if you look at it, Britain dealt with its internal problems by externalizing them. Right. So so you can't leave out the military history out of this, right? So, so you know, the army, for, for a start, was a very good way of absorbing very large numbers of unemployed young men, uh, young men who were not well-educated or didn't have great prospects, and, um, you know, send them off to, to, to oppress other people, you know? <laughs> it's, 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 it, it, there's a wonderful phrase I always like from, uh, I did a lot of 18th century work, you know, and, um, general Wolfe, who who was the first general British general to have the idea, which was a brilliant idea, you know, of what do we do with the Highland Scots now that we've we've destroyed their culture? Um, and he said, get them in the army, you know, bring them into the army. <laughs> and he put a great phrase. He said, they are hardy, intrepid, and no great mischief if they fall. <laughs> in other words, it doesn't matter if they get killed. That's fine. You know, <laughs> we'll send them off. You know, and so this is a very long, deeply established tradition, but it's fallen apart. This is the only thing you have to really remember: is there this this sort of military fantasy that they're now engaging in? Um, you know, I mean, you had Gavin Williamson, who he just you just look at Gavin Williamson, you think, what? <laughs> How is it possible this fellow is a government minister in a vaguely respectable country. But I mean, when Williamson was defense secretary, you know, talked about, uh, we're going to enhance our lethality after Brexit. <laughs> you think, I mean, it's a, it couldn't make the stuff up, but, but, but. Which is just like kill people. Basically. Yeah, we're going to kill more people. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Enhance our lethality. And Boris Johnson, the other day, like going on about like, you know, supersonic weapons and lasers and, you know, you, you just look at this, you're thinking, this is, this is the sort of mad phase of all of this stuff. 
But but the point, of course, is that they can put loads of money into it, but they can't do it. They've had they fought essentially two wars in 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 in, in the last twenty five years. They were defeated in both of them, and this is a really important context for Brexit. Actually, you know, this is also you know they they were beaten in Afghanistan. You know, um, they had an absolutely terrible time in Afghanistan. They 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 were had to be rescued by the Americans, and they were beaten in Iraq. So they 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 went in with the Americans in both cases. They said, "Give us a chunk of the country. We'll you know we'll 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 take care of this for you." And in both cases, they were unable to do so. They just don't have the military power to do this stuff anymore. Um, and uh, you know th- th- that's a big part of this as well. They're not used to that, you know. And so dealing with that whole military history, dealing with that whole sense of masculinity, of of, of how we project ourselves in the world, you know, all that stuff is 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 up for grabs. It's it's a kind of stew that's just kind of bubbling away there, um, and. You just don't know how this is going to play out. Um, I, I, to be optimistic for a moment, I mean, the one good thing about the unformed nature of English nationalism is that it's still there to be formed, you know? And, and let's remember that England has fantastic cultural, um, political traditions. You know, it's the country of Mary Wollstonecraft. It, it's the country of the, the suffragettes. It's, it's the country of... Shakespeare, it's the country of, you know, the, the great kind of social movements. Um, it, it has huge egalitarian traditions. Uh, you know, there, there, there's other ways of being proud to be English, you know, rather than um, shaking your fists at foreigners, you know. And I, I, I still think it's possible that out of the failure of Brexit, and it is going to fail. Well, it's not that's going to fail. It, it has already failed because it's impossible, you know, the the promise of Brexit was you're going to have all the same benefits of being in the European Union without being in the European Union. So, like that, that died on the day after the referendum. Right? So, so it's it, it's already failed, and we're just seeing the kind of tortuous playing out of that failure. And what comes after that, I think, is 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 a place in which there's a hell of a lot up for grabs, you know, and and it it, it just desperately needs a new discourse about what is it English people could be proud to be. And Johnson is obviously going to say, let's be proud to have, you know, this capacity to kill a lot of people, you know, the, the military, let's go back to that because it's the only thing historically that we know. Um, but surely there's another narrative, right, which, which is about this very diverse, energetic, intelligent, um, you know, uh, creative culture that's that's is enormously admirable and has a real place in the world. It's it's about the difference between hard power and soft power, right? So Johnson, I think Johnson at some level actually understands that they've blown the soft power. You know, it's incredible soft power. I mean, it's just you know this is the idiocy. The, the British were incredibly popular around the world. You know, people really like them. They like Monty Python and they like the Beatles and they like, you know, a, a, a British popular culture, you know, as, as disproportionately um, of, of, of enormous influence around the world. Uh, and they've blown that. They're, they're trying to destroy the BBC, which is probably the big bit of soft power that they still have left. Um, and so the only answer he has to this is, well, oh, let's, let's go back to hard power, you know. But, it's nonsense. They're not. They're not going to be a hard power in the world. Do you really think China is going to be saying, "Oh, we 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 better not um, misbehave in Hong Kong because the Brits might invade us, you know, or bomb us or something"? You know, it's just it's it's idiocy. But the soft power is still there to be to be molded, to be regained the cultural sense of of what people maybe should identify with and, and feel proud of, uh, I, I think is still there to be done. That doesn't mean it won't be done badly, but it does mean that it could be done well. Yeah, I think a lot of English people still hold on to the London Olympics opening ceremony as a way forward, as opposed to um, Eton and aircraft carriers and things like that. Um, Fintan, that, that's just been a really, really uh, fascinating and enlightening conversation as always. But before you go, um, I want to ask you one more thing. Um, you're not a man for pride, but what are you most proud of, do you think, career-wise? Um, the thing I'm most proud of career-wise, and of course I may be completely deluded with this, but is not going mad. Um, <laughs> if you look at the history of male Irish columnists, 
<laughs> not great, you know. <laughs> you know, like it, it's. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know. You're, you're far too um, grounded and sensible for this, but you know, um, it's a funny business. You know, it's a funny business being a sort of national preacher, um, without the bishop's uh, cloak. You know, and and um, it, 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 it can be very distorting. You know, because you, you, you invent a version of yourself who knows everything, <laughs> but of course, you know. You don't. You're just like anybody else, really. Um, just trying to make sense of things. Uh, and um, I, well, I, I, of course, uh, maybe the people who are most mad, uh, ones who don't even realize how mad they are. But I, I, I think I've managed to sustain some kind of balance, you know, and and uh, you know, still try to. Uh, you know, I, I suppose a lot of people would see me as very kind of. Um, you know, solemn and self-righteous, but you know, I, I, I do believe it or not, have a sense of humor about myself and about the business. And, you know, I, 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 I think I have some sense of proportion and the sense of proportion is just that you, you know, you're an idiot if you get deluded and think that you change things, but you're a worm if you don't think that you should be trying to change things. Excellent advice. Fintan O'Toole, stay sane. (laughs) Thanks a lot. That was a lovely conversation. Thank you. 